the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we're speaking with Curtis Hewson. As leader and co-founder of Jigsaw Learning, Curtis has championed the call for collaborative structures in schools to ensure success for all students and enhance the collective efficacy of those dedicated educators working in classrooms. Curtis works to establish responsive relationships with districts and system-level leaders to design collaborative frameworks for educators and develop leadership capacity at all levels. I think you're really going to like our conversation around his collaborative response and also what it's to say about school leadership. And if you like what we are hearing, please connect with us. You can go to our website at intersectioneducation.com. You can follow us on Twitter at intersectioned and we're even on Facebook. And you know what? We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and you leave a review. Here's my conversation with Curtis Hewson. Hey, Curtis. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you today? I'm doing great, Corey. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and I'm, I'm really so happy we can talk. Um, I've been following your work, and I remember actually seeing you present at a teacher's convention here in Edmonton three or four years ago, and I've been really interested in what you're doing since then. And, you know, speaking of that work, it seems like you can't go very far in educational circles these days without hearing people talking about the collaborative response model. And I was wondering if we could just start there with um, maybe a basic explanation of what this concept is. Can you explain what the model is for those who maybe have heard of it, but don't really know what it is? Yeah, for sure. Um, so when we talk about collaborative response model, I, I can go into a little bit later where the history, how it it uh, emerged from. But really, it's uh, it's about thinking about how do we collaboratively respond to the needs of students and doing so in a way that is really building up the capacity and collective efficacy of our entire team. Um, we sometimes have people say, well, is this a a uh, inclusive ed or a special education model, and it's not. We really want to try and focus on what are the needs of all of our students and how do we respond to them in a systematic way. We've actually, uh, as we've gone through and learned, it's been over 14 years that we've been working through this idea um, from my own own experiences in uh, school down in southern Alberta to where we're at now. But we've realized within the last two or three years that We've, we've moved away from referring to it as a model. We now refer to it as collaborative response because really it's a way of thinking about how we can establish structures and processes in our school that really ensure kids can't fall through the cracks and doing so in a way that really promotes the collective uh, efforts of our staff team. I'm, I'm a big believer that 
we cannot continue in education, especially in the current situation that we're in, um, through an isolated model uh, of teachers in isolated classrooms doing doing their own thing. We have to find ways to work effectively together. And so the idea of collaborative response is just trying to bring together how can we ensure that our collaborative structures and processes are informed by some data and evidence and that we have a continuum of supports that helps us answer the question of so now what do we do but to do so in a very responsive flexible and capacity building building way it's it's a simple idea but uh, as you know there's complexity in in establishing it within our own school or even district environment yeah absolutely we've seen that uh, complexity uh, you know, things seem simple until you actually try to make them happen. And and we've had Jenny Donahue as a guest on our podcast, and she, she spoke about collective efficacy. And I think that that's kind of what you're talking about. But I also think you, you bring that focus on the practical application that comes from experience and this cycle of trying things out in schools and then coming back to the model and adjusting. But speaking about that model, how did this kind of come about? You talk about a slow evolution, but maybe talk to us about how this has come to be. I know you were a principal, and I'm, I'm interested to see what did you see or what did you experience when you were working in schools that led to this idea of collaborative response? Yeah. Uh, so initially, um, we engaged in the work never to to have something that was going to attract other educators or schools. It was just thinking about in our own school, how can we ensure response for our students? So I had come in as the principal uh, at an elementary school down in Claire's home. And upon walking into the building, knew this is a great school, great teachers doing really good things for kids. But it didn't take long until you started to just observe and watch that the great things that were happening were happening in islands. Um, and that didn't mean that the staff didn't get along. They, we had a really good and, and connected staff, but I would say we were very collegial and not collaborative. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, when we talk about being collaborative, that we can dispute, we can argue, we can challenge one another, and that we have um, norms and structures, processes for how we go about that. So in this school, we... Uh, Everyone would have said we were a team, but I we weren't a, a high-functioning team. We were just a really good, exceptional group of, of educators. So when we started to put some structure to what was happening and started to – the teams that already had established um, half-hour collaborative times every week that were embedded in the schedule, um, but what was happening during that time was really quite loose and – um, varied immensely from from group to group. And so trying to really structure that time and then infusing that every four weeks, we first we expanded through some creative scheduling that time from a half an hour to an hour for our teams and then infused that every four weeks we would bring up this board of students, all of our students, and talk about who do we need to respond and that really driving that ethos of their they're our students, not your students or your students. Um, that was really prevalent in the school prior to of this is my class. That's your class. Um, you know, you'd hear the sigh, sigh of relief when you get your class list and know that 
this little one was in this room instead of mine. I I feel for you, but that's your problem. That's that's not mine. And so we started to put these pieces in in place. Started to um, really ensure the data that we had for student learning was having an impact on our conversations. Uh, started at the time we referred to it as a pyramid of interventions. We now call it a continuum of supports. But establishing that pyramid of how do we respond at each layer and who responds in each layer. And as we started to put those things in place and started to see some really exceptional things happening collectively, not just for our students, but our staff as well, we began to have other people come to visit to and started to get some requests out and we had to language it. it uh, once you started to share all of the different processes and, and structures and how they all fit together, it was it was really hard to envision for, for an outsider how all the pieces fit together. So we had to simplify. So we simplified it down into and called it collaborative response model um, because apparently the, well, it's kind of like response to intervention, but not really. And we kind of have some elements of professional learning communities, but not, not totally. That explanation didn't hold a lot of water for people. So we, we languaged it as collaborative response model. We talked about our three essential components of collaborative team meetings, assessments, and pyramid of interventions. Um, and it started to make sense for a lot of schools. So uh, that was over a course of five years in that school. And then since that time, just continue to get requests uh, out where we're now at a place where two thirds of the province have, uh, of the districts in the province, both public, separate, francophone, um, and First Nation partners um, are are utilizing either the the framework across their entire district or have schools within the district who are utilizing collaborative response, at least <laughs> to our knowledge. Um, and then schools abroad as well, not just uh, throughout Canada, but uh, some into the United States. And we've been working in Australia as well. So it's it's uh, a little bit humbling to think of something that was structured in a school just to respond to our own needs and our own students has stickability in other other jurisdictions. But again, it's the simple idea of just structuring ourselves to to ensure that we have a response for our kids, not leaving it up to individuals to to struggle through that. I think that's what spoke to me as a school leader. You know, some of the professional learning aspects, um, some of the assessment topics, those were important, but also the structure of how we're going to wrap around students. And then thinking about how we're going to not only effectively ensure student success, but how so how we're going to ensure that teachers don't feel like they're on their own right? That there's this group response and that we can do this together. And that's what really spoke to me. But you know, you don't just do work with collaborative response. You also do work around school leadership and, and you've even been recognized for, for your own leadership. And I'm interested in how you approach speaking with leaders and how the collaborative response influences that approach. I mean, you said uh, collaborative response is not just a structure, but but I imagine it's also a way about thinking and creating a culture of support. And so I'm interested to know what are some of the ways that you talk about leadership and to leaders that speaks to that underlying philosophy that guides collaborative response? Yeah, so I many, many years ago, I had the great pleasure of listening to Jay McTie. And he had talked about the idea that great leaders 
um, set the banks of the river, and then they let the water flow. So you you establish the frameworks and the structures, but then you don't micromanage um, what look what work that is happening within that. And that one always stuck with me. The idea that as leaders, we have to set the structures and the frameworks and the expectations in place. Uh, Dufour used to talk about that idea of loose, tight leadership of uh, I, I'm going to be loose on the things that I don't have as much understanding or depth of knowledge. I I, I don't know how to teach a grade one student um, how, to, how to acquire those reading skills at the same level of depth that someone who's been teaching at that grade level for a number of years would have. But as a leader, I need to make sure that I can set the conditions so that the people with those expertise are talking and interacting and helping to support one another. And then also that as a leader, I hold people um, hold people to what we've agreed upon as our shared norms and, and, and mission and vision for our school. So I, I really think that setting up the structures and the processes is, is our critical work as, yeah. as leaders. And if, if we're not able to do that, um, uh, you know, that idea of just being an inspirational leader, I, I don't think that's enough because I think the raw, raw can get people fired up for something. But when that enthusiasm fades, what, how do we continue to attend to our work and how do we continue to address things? And especially now, we're always going to have situations that arise that are new. They're new learning for us and we're not sure how to respond. You're, you're going to have the 30-year vet who says, I've never had it in my class. And if you don't have the processors or structures to say, okay, so what do we do? What could we try? What are we going to take away? And that, like Donahue says, the the collective efficacy, instead of turning to the, oh, well, there's nothing I can do. This Somebody else has to take this student or there's nothing we can do until the district gives us this or until this change happens in society. If, if we're not building those structures, uh, collective efficacy doesn't just happen because we do a book study or we want we want to see it happen. It it develops over time, yeah. which yeah. I think is critical. And I again, I think that's that's our role as leaders is being very intentional and focused in how we establish the structures for what we do. When I, I often say with leaders, when you go into a staff meeting, what's your plan? It's, it's the same as a teacher going into a classroom. If there's not a clear lesson plan on what your objectives and goals are and how you'll accomplish that, um, we need to do that as leaders as well. When I go into a PD day, why, what are we trying to accomplish? How does it connect to our larger goals? What, what are the activities that we're going to do to do that? Um, yeah, critically important. The, those. Yeah, it sounds like... And I'll come back to this. You're not just creating structures. You're, you're creating a culture. You know, people say, this is how we do things around here. Um, we're part of this collaborative team that works so well. And, and we're going to use that. You know, when we have issues, we're going to get better. We're going to talk about our issues. We're going to find solutions. We're not going to wait for these downer people. And that's the kind of culture that makes, you know, me feel positive. That's the kind of schools that I want to work in. And I, I don't know about other people, but it makes me feel like, you know, you're a force for positive change. And, and to understand that our learning as adults and our learning as an organization is going to be the same as it is in a classroom. It's going to be messy. You know, we're going to fail. We're going to try some things that won't work. And that's OK. It's supposed to happen. This um, Peters and Waterman talk about that concept of ready, fire, aim, that 
if you stay in the aim um, process for too long, it's you're not learning through that. You you have to fire and and make mistakes and adjust. Very messy, messy, but but purposeful. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you know, we've talked about how you establish this response in in schools and, and with school leaders, but I, I notice you're doing a little bit more work with system leaders, whether that be superintendents or other executive admin. And I'm wondering if there's any interesting tidbits or insights that you've learned from working with this upper level of leadership where they're not actively involved in the school work, but more in the system work. And their thinking is centered rather around a larger perspective. So what are some of the new lessons that you've learned working with system level leadership? Yeah, so that's actually been um, a part of the work that has emerged that I've absolutely loved is trying to think from a, a larger system perspective of what does it look like when we're establishing collaborative response across multiple schools. And I think the same concepts apply in that in our in our schools, we don't want segmented classrooms. We we want to come at it as as our students um, through through collaborative efforts. I think in a school system, we want the same that we don't have islands of schools with expertise. We need opportunities for them to network in be able to share. So one of the key things I've taken away from that is, again, going back to that setting the banks of the river, where I've seen the systems that make the greatest impact around specifically collaborative response uh, at a system level. It's because they've set out clear expectations for each of the schools that that serves as a framework for that schools can then put themselves into and recognize that every school context will be slightly different but that there are some expectations that we attend to. So I, I'm thinking of one district in particular where they created their um, almost like their guidelines so that in our in in every school within our district, there will be collaborative team meetings happening every three to five weeks. OK, now recognizing that in your school, Corey, that might have to look different then it'll look at a high school level, which will look different than it does at an outreach school. But there's still the expectation of every three to five weeks. Now, if you need, if you are unsure how to do that, great, we're here to support. How can we, how can we help support that? Another would be we expect schools to utilize this, these data assessments to be able to inform their conversation. Um, but how those get organized for the conversation are going to look differently. Um, but I, I think setting up again those clear parameters and expectations, but then the idea that um, we hold you responsible to those, which is a little bit different than than accountable. Responsible means that we're doing this together. I'm not here to get you when you screw up or when you miss the particular guidelines. It's okay. How what can we do to support you? Can't you're having trouble creating the time for these team meetings that we've expected? All right. So who who's best to support you? Is it another school leader? Is it someone from our central office? Is it uh, someone from external? And we've actually seen systems now that develop their continuum of supports, just like in a school where there's a continuum of tier one, what are the universal things we'll see in every classroom within our school? Tier two being what are the differentiated strategies that we should see uh, within the classroom, but it'll shift or adjust for each individual student or groups of students. Tier three being what are the supports that are provided by someone other than the classroom teacher? And then tier four being the supports provided 
by someone from outside the school. We've seen districts that have set up the same tiered approach for supports for schools in regards to tier one. What are the things we should see everything, every school doing? Tier two is what are some of the things that we should see some schools being able to attend to and we can use each other schools to be able to inform and help support. Tier three being what are the supports that need to come from our central office into the school and tier four, what are the externals that need to come? It's It's been really fascinating to see the same principles uh, applying at that system level as well. Yeah, I think that's probably an indication that you've got some of the underlying principles right. And, and you know, I want, I want to talk about that because it seems like Jigsaw Learning is an Alberta-grown organization and you came up with this approach because it, it worked for you here, but, but now it's really grown. Um, uh, you mentioned you've been working in the United States and in Australia, and I'm wondering what are some of the lessons that you've learned as you've expanded into these other countries, and have you noticed some things more, more, more of the things that brings us together, like more, more of the things that you have seen to be now universal. I know that some people like to focus on differences, but I'd rather actually talk about how we're similar. And that way, if someone's listening to this in another area of Canada or, or another area in the world, um, they'll see that what you're doing will work there as well. What, what have you seen there? Um, so I think there's some universal truths that have emerged through every one of those, um, not only within our own pro- province, um, but beyond. And the first is that teachers love kids, that that teachers want to see children succeed, uh, whatever whatever that learner looks like, um, and get frustrated when when there's obstacles in the way of that, or when you feel like you just are not having the impact that you'd like to have. I think that one's been universal, and I think that's one of the reasons why collaborative response has has grown in the way that it does is because it really does honor the teacher and says you have expertise but you can't know everything and that's okay. Um, but collectively, when we put all of us around the table, man, we can do some amazing things, but to expect every one of us to do it all individually, it's not, not fair or acceptable. So I think that's been one that when teachers go, okay, I don't have to have all the answers and I can rely upon my team to uh, assist me. That one has been huge for us. I think the other thing that, I mean, Collaboration in schools is not a new concept. Um, it's It's been studied and looked at through a number of different le- lenses and through a number of different uh, mechanisms or platforms. But I think what makes collaborative response stand out is the authenticity that we engage in our collaborative efforts through a desire to see success for this student. Um, so we can say, I'm worried about Jeffrey. Here's the key issue that I'm seeing. We can attach other students who have similar key issues. And then when we say, so what could we do? And we reference our continuum of supports and that we're investigating new practices. We're investigating alternate approaches, but not just because the principal attended a conference session and came back and said, we should all do this learning together. It's it's coming from a place that's authentic and, and true of, I just want to see this kid succeed. So I'm willing to try some things that might be outside of my current toolbox. Uh, I think that one's been um, universally 
accepted that that when you tie the conversation to an actual student that you want to see impact for, um, you will see professionals willing to do things outside of their comfort level than they might normally do, um, not because a colleague is pressuring me to do it or because the district says I have to engage in this, but it's because I just want to see this kid have some success and I'm willing to try something that's outside of my my zone to be able to do that. Absolutely. And that, that seems to be part of the success. I mean, I think it gives people hope. It helps people who work in schools believe they can make a difference. I think that's another piece of the success. And, and to allow ourselves as as professionals or as a school to fail. We're, we might try something that won't work for this student, but it might lead to a new insight that, that we hadn't had before. But it's not for lack of effort. We're we're going to try a lot of different things and some things will work. Some things might only work for the next week and a half um, and that's okay. Then we'll try something else and understanding that we're not fixing broken students. Uh, the, the kids aren't broken. We're just, we're responding in a way that best fits the, the needs of our, our students in the school and who they are as, as individuals and more importantly, human beings. I'm interested in your response to the next question because you've had a chance to, to get around and speak with a lot of people. But is there anything about education or learning that you think is true? But when you bring it up and talk about it, people don't agree with you about it. They, they give you some pushback on. Um, so I would say my greatest passion is that this profession has to be a collaborative endeavor. Um, and I can see people that will nod with that until it comes to the actual rubber hitting the road. And, you know, I'll, I'll engage. And, and we saw this at points in our own school of, oh, I don't have time to collaborate because I just want to be with my students. Um, or that pushback of, uh, if, if I have to go into this collaborative team meeting, that means somebody else has to take my students and I'd rather just have that time with them because it's valuable. And I'm a big proponent that... For the same reason that a doctor doesn't attend to surgeries for the entire shift that he's on, and the same reason that a lawyer doesn't um, isn't in court for the entire um, time that he's clocking, they they have they have collaborative time, they have prep times, they 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 have those things in place for them to to learn and explore, and uh, and I think that has to be done together for us more as a profession, and I. If I ever had the the message to be able to share with those that are providing funding is is how do we provide more more funding and opportunities for teachers to collaborate and meaningfully collaborate? I'm not talking about attending a, a conference where we all go our different ways, but to collaborate and learn together. And that learning is through discussion and exploration. And you need time to do that. It can't be a Tuesday after school endeavor for for 30 minutes. It it needs to become part of our regular practice. Um, and, and yeah, you get pushback because that takes creative timetabling. It takes additional funding in some cases. And it takes uh, a willingness that the profession is not just standing in front of students. It's There's other elements that are, are important so that the time with the students can be as impactful as possible. 
Yeah, and it sounds like there is some emerging research around collaborative structures and the positive influence that it has on teacher learning. So I think that's interesting to follow. Um, The next question I have is more about learning environments and thinking about the places where people learn and where maybe yourself, where you have learned, what are some of the best learning experiences that you've had and what were the contributing factors? Was it the people, the place, the, the structure, how it was presented? What are the greatest learning environments? Uh, I think it refers to, or it goes back to what I had talked about earlier is that understanding that, that true learning is messy. And sometimes for myself, that's hard to wrap my head around because I, I like order. I like structure. I, I like how, how things can line up and to understand that the learning process doesn't follow that, that linear project. It's, it's cyclical. It's, we're going to learn through each iteration and it's not going to be perfect as we go through. And I think that's a huge understanding that we're going to make mistakes. Um, and sometimes as professionals, we don't feel that we can do that, but to be open and say, this might not work, but we're going to try. And I think that's something that we've really tried to promote within our own jigsaw learning organization is that we're a learning organization and we, we learn by, by failing forward. Um, and, and taking away, so what didn't work? Why didn't it work? What would you do differently next time? And I, I, to me, that's become such a huge revelation over the last number of years, is that um, perfect plans do not mean perfect results. Um, it, we're better to go with fluid fluid plans and understand that the learning is going to emerge as we, as we engage, which is why our current time is... Um, it can be stressful and it can be be taxing, but it's also really exciting when you think about how fluid and the, the learning curve that's being attended to right now in so many schools. Um, I think yeah. we are living right now. What does it mean to truly learn effectively? And it's through trial and error and authentic and, and vulnerability and being able to say, huh, this this might not be working. Why not? What's What else do we need to change? Yeah, and I come back to what you said earlier, you know, having the support of a team, having the psychological safety, it makes some of that messy learning a bit easier, I think. If we said it as part of our, our mandate as a school, one of our norms is that um, we we will be open when we make mistakes and look for opportunities to uh, to learn from it. So important. Now, thinking of those opportunities um, and maybe the positives as well as the negatives. Do you have any experiences that you think back on and you you refer to them or you think of them as almost a favorite failure or a favorite success? Something where you lived an experience and you learned a really important lesson and you reflect on that often. Absolutely. Um, so I was reflecting on this question. I've been reflecting on this one actually for quite a while because obviously you want to always be thinking about how to grow and improve. And I think back to myself as a, as a younger leader um, in, in some of my first schools, even the, the school where we were establishing collaborative response. And I think one of my um, errors that came from good intentions, but I can look back now and go, oh, I, I've learned a lot since then, is thinking that I'm helping, 
by taking things off everybody's plates. And what I mean by that is a simple example of being in a collaborative team meeting. And in order for others to be be engaged, I thought I was helping by facilitating the meeting, taking the notes, being the timekeeper, taking on all of these roles. Where now when I talk with schools, we talk about distributing that. I really think that I, I've learned more of the power of distributed leadership and that um, you don't have to take all those things off of people's plates, put them back onto people's and then provide the supports to help them to learn to do that. Well, so even in that simple example of a collaborative team meeting, uh, whenever I'm working with schools around that, I'll tell them that I made the mistake as a principal of thinking I'll take on all the roles because it'll help others. Where now, how can you teach someone else to facilitate that conversation? How can you teach someone to um, be the re the recorder? Is there someone with already a natural skill set that can fill into those those roles and and work on building up so that um, things don't become dependent on on a single single individual it's that's that's been key and i i i still uh have to keep reminding myself and keep reflecting on it as as i can fall back into those habits of i'm just helping by taking these off your plates a couple of uh quicker questions i was wondering if you had any apps or websites that you're really liking or maybe even recommending to others yeah um so with our our uh New reality and new learning environments, I've become completely enamored with some of the online video platforms. Um, we've been spending a lot of time as a group learning about Zoom, and I'm yeah, I'm really excited about the possibilities, not just how we're using it now, but what it could look like in the future as far as professional learning and coaching um, for schools and mentorship. Uh, the idea that that doesn't always have to be face-to-face. Uh, -face. We can we can have the face-to-face -face experiences to build relationship, but then continue a relationship through some of the online. I've, uh, <coughs> excuse me, also really been uh, enamored with the use of things like Flipgrid, um, some of these others for just collecting quick video, the the screencastifies and screencastomatic platforms. I, I think the uh, the the use of video and the use of that to be able to connect and see one another is going to be continue to just change what we do in education, which is, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's going to continue to impact us. So I've been really enamored with some of those um, platforms and applications. How about a book that you either quote or refer to or recommend to others? Yeah, you bet. So, um, Really a big fan of uh, Lencioni's work around teams. Um, we, when any a new, a new member joins our Jigsaw Learning Team, we actually give them the five dysfunctions of team as a book to read. And then we talk and discuss, so what does this mean? The idea that, you know, we have to establish trust and how do we do that? And we actually, within our own organization practice, what's it going to look like when we are in conflict? Um, how... How do we how do we manage that appropriately um, and, and then practice it as well? So I absolutely I know that he comes from a more of a business perspective, but the applications to education are really, really fantastic. And he has a great way of simplifying um, some really key learning 
pieces for us, especially around team. And again, he's a big promoter that a group of people is not a team. In fact, a group of people might be less impactful than any one individual if they're not um, if they're not trusting, if they don't have a culture of of support. It's uh, it reminds me of that study through Google that they did of their teams and the idea that the team membership had very little impact on the effectiveness of the overall team. It was how the team worked together. And it could be comprised of people who necessarily didn't even like each other outside of the work environment. But if you could establish the processes and the ways that they work together, they could have high impact. And so Lencioni does a great job, especially in that five dysfunctions of, of laying out what that really looks like to be on a team and not just a, a team that would call themselves a team until things break down. Yeah. Yeah. What's something that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy? I think the answer to that one is telling my wife every day that I love her. To me, the, the power of the relationships is, is huge. And that's one that I've learned through, um, through personal experiences that it's important to let the people around you know that you love them each and every day. And, and, uh, yeah, I think that's that's the main thing that keeps me well and healthy and in a good place. Yeah, that's a great one. Now, I wonder if there's any people or organizations out there that are really inspiring you right now, uh, people you're looking to for inspiration and doing good things. Um, yeah, so I thought about this one as well, and I think... I think really when we think about that, and this may be a little more of a vague answer than you're looking for, Corey, but I'm absolutely inspired right now by what teachers and schools at the ground level are doing. And I know that um, that there's a lot of, of different organizations that are, are putting different things out right now and helping to contribute to that. But I've, I've been spending more of my time watching teachers' Twitter um, accounts, seeing things that they're trying with their students, um, having conversations like this um, with you to find out what's happening in your school and what are things that you're doing. I, I'm just inspired by our colleagues right now and and the, the way that we're re-looking at what learning can look like. And I think right now our profession is at one of its most vulnerable places as far as saying, we're not sure what this is going to look like, but we're going to try some things. And I've been absolutely inspired and and seeing teachers reaching out and trying to establish those connections and relationships with not just students, but families at a time when stress levels can be high. And it's really grounded me back into what's what's most important. And it is the connections and relationships. And again, when we think of collaborative response, it's how do we leverage the relationships and the connections that we have with students to come up with innovative um, responses that are going to work? Now, I'm really interested in following along with what you're doing and uh, what's next for both you and for Jigsaw Learning. What do you have on the on the plans? What can we look forward to seeing from both you and from Jigsaw Learning in the coming days or weeks or years? Yeah, so our, our Jigsaw Learning team has really just grown organically from uh, the understanding that there's a lot of schools interested in this collaborative response and it's 
it's very hard to do as a job on the side. Um, so when we began to work exclusively with schools and districts around this work, we needed to give the organization a name and Jigsaw Learning became that name. And at first it just involved myself and then myself and my wife. And now we've expanded out to little over a dozen different associates, but with expertise in literacy and social emotional supports and, and numeracy supports. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of leadership uh, expertise as well. So our team is really right now focused on what does re-entry uh, look like and how can we help to support schools. We know that this is going to be, again, a time of radical learning. And I think that it's going to increase when we get to the fall and start looking at potentially blended models of, of what it looks like as students start to make return to physical environments, but knowing those environments are going to look different as well. So that's definitely where we've put our attention and, and energy is what what is that re-entry going to look like? What are timetables going to look like when we have staggered entries for students? What's professional learning going to look like when we can't come together in large groups um, for quite a while? Uh, we know that <laughs> the reality of summer lag is probably going to be um, compounded by another two to three months on top of that for a number of our students. And so how do we ensure effective interventions for students coming back in, recognizing that some of our most vulnerable students and families are um, are not as well tended to in our current um, in our current situation as we would optimate ultimately like. So how, how do we ensure supports for them coming back in? Uh, I, again, I think the impact of of trauma and anxiety is going to be heightened so how, how do we ensure that that not just the students are are regulated to learn but our staff are are regulated so we've been working on developing some co-regulation resources uh, as well for us so it's again exciting work but i think that's where our our group and our organization is just really trying to See, we, we've always built ourselves on how can we help and how can we support? And now this help and support is going to look different. Absolutely. You know, uh, someone was telling me the other day, they said that it was a heck of a lot easier to shut it down than it is to restart it. And I think we have to think through all of the different effects they will have on, on learning as well as how health, you know, mental health and all that kind of stuff. And I'm really glad that you guys are a part of reimagining what that might looks like that might look like and uh, putting it back together well and i think the other part of that Corey, too is we were going to have different dynamics at play in the fall even before the pandemic came around with with um the resources and and financial for us right now so how can we re-envision what we do because what's worked in the past we can't replicate it and, in in uh, moving forward into the future, so how do we take what we've learned and and uh, use it to adapt and be flexible moving forward? And again, this is where where I think collaborative response is not just necessary but absolutely critical because if we're expected to simplicity do more with less, then the power of the collaboration becomes even more important. Of when we've when we don't have the same amount of resources at our disposal, then we have to become even more innovative and more resourceful 
for ourselves. And the way we do that is through team. You know, let's say people are interested in uh, getting, reaching out to you, following along. What's the best way that they can make contact with both either yourself or with uh, Jigsaw? Uh, so our website, jigsawlearning.ca, is probably the best. And from there, connects to our Twitter uh, account, Facebook. Uh, we have a, a Facebook group for educators where we, we try and engage in dialogue uh, with one another. That um, connects through our website as well, as well as a YouTube channel for uh, different videos and webcasts as well. That's probably the best way to, to get in touch is through that jigsawlearning.ca website. Curtis, I just want to thank you so much for taking a little bit of time. I really appreciate the work that you're doing with Collaborative Response. And I think it is going to, you know, it's going to help my school, I think. And, and, and hopefully it, it will mean something and will improve the practice of all, everyone listening. So thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time, and I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much, Corey. Appreciate the the invite and the opportunity to chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intersection Education Podcast. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi, or Blackfoot, Métis and Dakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and respect this land.